move into our teaching time. And I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I want to extend a welcome to your ask as we move into uh, this time. How many of you are New Year's resolution type people? You make a resolution in the new year. A few of you are willing to put your hands up and a few of you are shaking your hands, uh, shaking your head saying, no, I'm not going to get caught in whatever trap Brad's setting for me right now. There's no trap. I'm just saying. I'm asking a question. Um, New Year's resolutions, it's a thing, right? In our culture, uh, we come into this time and people will talk about it and ask, well, what are you, what's your resolution for the new year? Um, oftentimes, these resolutions at least in my experience in my own personal life, tend to be motivated by things I didn't quite get to last year. And so I'm going to put them on the list for accomplishment. So sometimes for me that means reading stuff. Like I'll make a list of stuff I didn't read but I wanted to read. And so that becomes part of my New Year's resolution. Uh, I know last year I told you I wanted to read 24 biographies in 2018. And... um, I underestimated how long some of the biographies in that book that I bought were, and so I read 12 of them, which is more than I would have read if I didn't maybe set a goal to read the biographies, but still not, I didn't get done my resolution uh, from last year. I will say, however, for me, some of the most transformative New Year's resolutions that I have made have involved scripture intake and involve Bible reading. But no matter how many times I make a Bible reading scripture intake resolution, there are always parts of the Bible that I feel like I don't get to. I don't know if you feel that way. Uh, Even if I say, okay, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. uh, The part that I often sort of pick up steam and then I lose steam in is somewhere usually around the minor prophets. So the minor prophets are this section towards the end of the Old Testament. So if you were to start reading your Bible left to right and you're starting in the Old Testament, you know, the minor prophets are are that section where you kind of give up and you're like, I'm done. (laughs) I'm not going to make it through this whole Bible reading thing. And there's 12 minor prophets. And in the Hebrew scriptures, these are called the book of the 12. And they're not minor Uh, because somehow they're unimportant or the themes are not really salient. They're minor strictly in length. So the major prophets are like the really long ones, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. And then the minor prophets are the ones that are usually just a lot shorter than that. And the very first minor prophet that was written down was uh, the prophet Amos, the book of Amos. And many of the themes in the book of Amos are incredibly relevant for us today. But you have to do a little bit of digging because the way that the minor prophets read to us in the 21st centuries is just weird. They seem inaccessible, even though the themes that they deal with are incredibly powerful and relevant. In the book of Amos, it talks about how do we treat people who are poor? in our society? Uh, How do we think about our finances? How do we think about issues of justice? And all of these things come to us in the book of Amos. 
And so we're going to start out here, 2019 at Jericho, by going through the book of Amos. We're going to spend four weekends together on it, and we've called this series Back to the Start, because really what Amos is doing is calling people to kind of level set again and get back to things that they want to do and that are important, but that sometimes we forget about. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Amos. And it might take you a little bit to find it. It's tucked away uh, at the back. If you go kind of Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, then you'll get to Amos. And while you're finding it, let me set a little bit of context for us. And think about this Amos person. Who is Amos? Who was Amos? And one of the interesting things about Amos is that he was a very regular person. He was a farmer. He was a uh, sheep herder and a fig farmer. And so when we look right away at Amos chapter 1, verse 1, it book starts off saying, this is a message given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. And so right away, sometimes we think about, you know, the people that may have written some of these things down that are encapsulated for us in scripture as like hyper-spiritual, super-religious people. They were all must have been religious professionals with lots of degrees and all kinds of stuff. And Amos right away says, nope, not any of those things. I'm a shepherd. I'm a field worker. He may have been a business person that owned multiple uh, flocks and herds. We don't know. Uh, But it's clear that he was, amongst other things, he was, whatever he was, he was not a professional prophet. And so, one of the things that I want to highlight for us before we go any further in looking at this is just a, a quick note for those who, as we come into a new year, feel, I don't know, not super spiritual, and feel like, ah, oh, this whole thing of learning to walk with God, it seems complicated and difficult. I don't know if I could do that. That seems like it should be for other people, not for me. And one of the things we're going to see as we go through the book of Amos is that God can speak to anyone, and God can speak through anyone to other people. See, in the book of Amos, God wants to communicate some things to the nations around Israel. And he doesn't choose a king. He doesn't choose a professional priest to do it. He chooses a shepherd from an out-of-the-way little town to say, Amos, I want to choose you. I have a message that I'm going to give to you, and I want you to take that and give it to other people. In fact, Later on in the book, Amos gets grilled by the professionally religious people about his qualifications to bring a message in the city of Bethel. And in chapter 7, the priest is asking Amos, what are you doing here, buddy? You think you're going to come and give this word from the Lord to the rest of us? What's all that about? You think you're super spiritual? And Amos says, oh no, (laughs) I'm not a professional prophet, Amos chapter 7, verse 14. I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd. I take care of sycamore fig trees, but the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go, prophesy to my people in Israel. Amos is just a shepherd, 
who becomes a messenger because he hears what it is that God's saying to him and he has the willingness to say yes to that and declare it. And today, uh, we celebrate in the Christian calendar the Feast of Epiphany, meaning we've just come through Christmas. And if you think about the Christmas story, we have echoes of this right there in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, verse 16, the shepherds hurried to the village. They received a message from, from God, an angelic visitation, saying, hey, go, there's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Go check it out. And they hurry to the village. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, shepherds just go back to their flocks and do nothing. No. After seeing him, it says, the shepherds told everybody what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. These shepherds became messengers of God's good news. And Amos has the same experience. And so this reminds us that God can speak to anyone and God can speak through anyone to another purpose person. Because if God can use Amos, a shepherd, to speak prophetically to kings, to religious leaders in his day and age, God can use you. I actually put Sandy's in my manuscript. Sandy's going to say amen there. So that's good. <laughs> that would be a good time for an amen. <laughs> um, but in order to get the most out of the book of Amos, we have to think a little bit about uh, the context uh, that Amos is speaking into. So a little bit more about what Amos, the time frame in which Amos lived. He lived in the nation of Judah, and he lived several centuries uh, before the shepherds received that angelic news of the birth of Jesus. But Amos lived during a time of incredible prosperity. This was one of the high points historically of Judah and Israel. It's just a little bit after David and Solomon, just starting into the divided kingdom. And so both the south and the north, uh, the southern kingdom is Judah, the northern kingdom is referenced as Israel oftentimes. And they're living through an incredible time of economic prosperity. Things are really good for them at this time. And also the kings and the leaders, they're doing their own economic expansion projects, they're building stuff. Things are going really, really well for them. And then Amos comes along and delivers what we're going to see as some fairly bad news, you better get your act together kind of messages. And oftentimes, when things are going really, really well, when there's incredible prosperity and peace, and then someone comes along and says, hey, we should pay attention to some things that are going on in our society that are maybe not always evident, but they are important. It can be dismissed. And so Amos chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Amos has and receives a message in visions uh, from the Lord two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, son of uh, Jehoash, was king of Israel. And so Amos receives and delivers this series of poems, pictures, and sermons that's later written down to capture some of the things that are on God's heart around 
justice? And what does it mean to live justly in the world? And one of the things that I love about Amos that we're going to see as we go through the book is he just uses very common everyday pictures from life that he would know and that people around him would know to communicate what's on God's heart. So he uses things like the image of a fruit bowl or of a lion roaring and scaring off sheep or agricultural images or building images. He uses like a plumb line for construction at some point. And he uses these things to try and convey God's perspective But his messages are not great news, keep going, everything is awesome kind of messages. They're corrective messages because they center around how justice is not being done. And so Amos is a disruptor. He's an agitator. He's giving a harsh message to people when things seem like they're going really, really well on the surface. People around him are loving life and saying, Amos, don't bug us with these sort of dour kind of messages about the poor and the oppressed. Like, what do we need to hear about that for? We're doing okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Just be quiet about all this stuff already. And Amos, this little shepherd from this little village six miles south of Bethlehem comes along and goes right into the courts of the king, goes right into the place of worship in the city of Bethel and says, gang, there is a problem. We need to fix some stuff here. And he speaks up against injustice that he sees around him. And just like in our day and time, if that were to happen, In Amos' day and time, when he brings a message of speaking out against injustice and violence, it is not very well received by a lot of people. Because he comes and he says things like Amos chapter 1 verse 2. This is what I heard and this is what I have seen. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The lush pastures of the shepherds are going to dry up and the grass on Mount Carmel is going to wither and die. People are saying to him, come on, Amos, you're being a little bit dramatic, don't you think? Like, everything's okay. We're still, the grass is still green, we're looking okay. But I was watching one of those uh, year-end news reviews, uh, roundups, uh, just over the last couple of weeks, and I was struck by the fact that the most, one of the most searched terms in 2018 was the word justice. And the reporter was putting forward a hypothesis and she's saying, I wonder why so many people are are trying to search for and ask questions about justice. And she said, I wonder if even though we may seem in our own North American suburban existence like, well, things seem to be going okay, if we take our eyes and cast them up around the world, we recognize there are so many places where justice is denied or delayed and where there are people crying out and saying, this is not right. Something about the world is broken fundamentally. And even here, if you look a little bit closer to home, it's true as well. And Amos is trying to draw our focus and our attention to some of these things. He's declaring that even when we think things are going great, that there are some times and in some ways where God's justice 
and his right standards are being violated. Things that will lead to human flourishing are not being followed and practiced. And so Amos leaves his sheep and makes the trek up to the city of Bethel and he starts speaking out. And eventually these things are written down for us in the book of Amos. And he speaks out about injustice, not only on a personal level, but on a systemic level and an institutional level, on a national level as well. And so if you read through the first few uh, chapters of the book of Amos, it reads a little bit more like a court proceeding than uh, like anything else in the scriptures. And it's almost like God is bringing charges against these nations, these groups of people. And he's going to lay the case out and say, listen, there's some things that I want to bring your attention to. And it's almost, when you read it, it gets fairly graphic and detailed. It's almost like a war crimes tribunal that God is calling the nations to how they treat people. And so Amos begins to speak into this and it gives us a sense of how God defines justice. What does justice look like in our day and time? So we're going to look just overview of the first chapter of Amos. And these six groups that Amos brings these charges against. Uh, the first one is, starts out right away in chapter 1, verse 3. This is what the Lord says, The people of Damascus, or Syria, have sinned again and again. And he starts each little refrain off with this kind of poetic intonation. They've, they've done something that has resulted in God being displeased with their actions as a nation or as a people. And in the case of Damascus, the charge that Amos brings against them is a charge of extreme cruelty. In Amos 1.3, uh, it says, they beat down my people in Gilead as grain is threshed with iron sledges. So, when you think about the ancient world, there are a lot of times where there's skirmishes, there's war between these ancient city-states or these little people groups that live all through the ancient Near East. And the people of Damascus are singled out here as being particularly bad and cruel and unjust in their use of force and violence against the people of Israel who lived in Gilead. And Amos is using what for him and for them would have been a common, commonly understood farming implement, a threshing sledge, to make his point about how bad they've treated people. But we don't really use anything that resembles a threshing sledge in modern farming. And uh, so it, it's something that we have to kind of get our minds around a little bit. Uh, and a threshing sledge was something that after you cut the grain down and then it's lying in the field and it's drying, you need to figure out how are you going to separate the actual crop, the grain, the heads of the grain from the stalk and everything else. Uh, you need to get the edible parts 
from the straw and the husks. And so you wouldn't do this by hand in a field. It would just take too much time. And so one of the ancient farming implements that they invented was a threshing sledge. And it was a series of boards that you could then stand on, kind of like this guy, and you'd have whatever uh, animal that you owned, you'd hitch your animal up and they'd pull you through your field back and forth and back and forth. And this would then separate the grain because of the pressure and also what's on the bottom of that sledge from uh, the, the stalks. And so on the bottom of these boards, you would embed hundreds of pieces of little bits of iron. And that way, when you run your boards across the grain, it kind of cuts them open and then it loosens the stalks from the husks and then you can go through and collect the meaningful part that you need and then you gotta do the process of winnowing and then you're ready uh, and you've actually harvested your grain. And so Amos says to the people of Damascus, listen, when you went to war against the people of Gilead, it's like you lined them all up in a field and you drove your iron sledge back and forth across these people in a horrible and cruel and unjust way. Imagine the damage that that would do to people. That's extreme cruelty. And so God says to the people of Damascus through Amos, that is not okay. When you treat other people like that, that is un just. Well, what in the world does that have to do with us? You say, I don't own any fields. If I owned a threshing sledge, I certainly would not run it across other people. But if we can think about situations in our world today, where would injustice be perpetuated? Harsh treatment of other people that's unjust. I can think about uh, on one of our uh, teams that went to Guatemala and we were up in the northern part of uh, the country and we ran into and interacted with a people group that had been forcibly displaced from their land because a large mining operation wanted what was underneath their territory and so the mining company came in and actually poisoned the water so that these people would have to leave so that they could then get in and extract the resources from the ground. All in the name of shareholder profit. That's taking a threshing sledge and running it right whole across a people group. Or think about in situations where you work, people in positions of authority that abuse their power and are going to make things happen that they want to see accomplished regardless of the human cost to people around them. They don't care what happens to other people so long as they get what they want. They will run over top of anything or anyone who gets in their way. That's what Amos is getting at here. He's saying, listen, if you have to beat others down in order to get ahead, that is unjust and it does not go unseen by God. So this is the type of message that Amos is bringing to people in his day. 
And there's five other accusations against five other nations. Let's look at them. The next one is a charge against the people of Gaza. He says, listen, when you went to war, you took whole villages of people and you sold them as slaves to another nation. You treated people as a commodity that could be bought and sold. And you didn't just do this. It was fairly customary in ancient times to do that with prisoners of war. And Amos says, oh no, you didn't just do that with prisoners of war. You did it with the whole village. Every single person, you just sold them into captivity. Their inherent worth and dignity, you ripped it away from them on purpose for economic gain. We've seen this time and time again through history. Slavery as an economic engine. But slavery is not just an economic issue or a historical issue. It's a theological issue. And it's an issue that continues today. And it's an issue that God cares deeply about because it is always a dehumanizing of a person into a commodity. A person who bears the image of God. And again, we can say to ourselves, well, again, Brad, I would never, I don't own iron or threshing sledges. I do not have the opportunity to sell people into slavery. And of course, I would never do that. Well, with the Old Testament prophets, it's never quite as simple. Because what Amos is getting at here with Gaza is the question of how do you treat your enemies? People of Gaza had a very convenient way of treating their enemies. Just get rid of them, sell them into slavery. But how do we treat our enemies? people with whom we disagree. One of the first temptations I find when I get into a strong disagreement with somebody is to try and dehumanize them in some way, either in my thinking or in my vocabulary. That kind of dehumanization occurs on a gradient. At one end, extreme end, is selling whole villages into slavery, but also in that gradient, is dehumanizing another person that you disagree with in order to justify your position and say, well, I'm right. Clearly, they must be wrong because they just don't get it. They're not, they're not thinking like a real logical person. One of the lessons of the book of Amos is that we need to guard carefully against othering, of othering people in our language and in our behavior. Nation number three, the steady state of Tyre. And they're taken to task because they've broken a treaty of brotherhood that they have made with Israel. And again, they've sold whole villages as slaves to another power, Edom. And Tyre is uh, in a unique situation because Tyre actually, uh, as a city, was out on a rocky isthmus. And it was considered unassailable, like no one could beat the city of Tyre. You could not bring your army against it because as soon as you got ships close enough to it, they would be able to repel you. You couldn't get a big enough army out because there was only one tiny little path in and tiny little path out. And so Tyre went around the ancient world doing whatever they want and then retreating back to their little city out on the rocky island and saying, you can't come and get us. And so they a bunch of times in the Minor Prophets, Tyre is just railed against and said, these people have done really bad things because they think they can get away with it all. Uh, Until the fourth century, when Alexander the Great, we know from history, 
went around the ancient world and had, took him a long time, but he stopped at the city of Tyre and was like, we're going to take this city down. And in fact, he built an entire causeway out to the city. So think about like Tawasson, the causeway, BC Ferries Terminal. It's about that far out. He built an entire causeway out so that he could take his whole army out and he attacked, sacked, and burned the city of Tyre to the ground. He's like, we're done with this. <laughs> we're not putting up with these people anymore. But Tyre, in this situation, thinks, I'm going to break a promise that I made. I'm going to break a treaty that I made with Israel. They're not going to do anything about it. What should we care? It's, it's to my benefit to be in the right here. So I'm just going to lie straight out, break this treaty, and get on with it. Well, what about us? How are you at keeping your word? When you say you're going to do something, does it get done? so much as it is in your power to do so. When you make a promise to someone, are you intending to keep it? Or are you just saying, yeah, 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 I'll totally help you with that. <laughs> and you really don't mean that in any way. See, the people of Tyre actually had the capacity to keep that treaty and to actually send help to their neighbors, Israel. But they sold them out. They said, ah, it's not really convenient for us to come right now. We'll just let you guys taken on the chin. And in fact, they sided with another entity and made that happen. Being a person of your word is one way in which you can ensure that justice is done in the world because you can be counted on then. Or will you break your promise that you make under pressure? Nation number four, Edom. In Amos chapter one, verse 11, Amos says, this is what the Lord says, the people of Edom have sinned again and again. They chased down their relatives, the Israelite, with the swords, and they showed them no mercy. They slashed, in their rage, they slashed them continually and were unrelenting in their angry, in their anger. So they're called to account. And they're called to account for their rage and for the way in which they act in their anger. Now, anger is an interesting thing because when you get angry, it can be very difficult to get unangry. Anger is something that can build and can, can begin to really take a hold in your life uh, and so that it's difficult to control. It's like a fire oftentimes in the scripture. It's, uh, that language is used. It, it gets heated up and it gets hot and it stays hot. And the New Testament helps us understand that anger in and of itself is not a sin. Anger is an emotion that you experience. And some of you have been raised uh, in an environment or in a home where any expression of strong emotions is off limits and considered sinful in some way. But it's not that Edom's being called to account for getting angry. We can see even in the life of, uh, life of Jesus, instances where he was prompted by circumstances that he encountered that were unjust to move towards and respond in anger. It was a righteous anger meaning it was anger motivated by justice. But Edom here has gotten angry, and in their anger, they have dispensed with mercy, and they've moved to a place of rage and unrelenting 
anger. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, helps us understand that anger is a strong emotion and one can feel it, but there is a place where we move beyond the strong emotion and we do get into a place where we are actively sinning. And that is when we let anger control us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says this, Do not sin by letting your anger control you. So let me ask you this. As you come into 2019, how are you doing in the area of anger in your life? Are you doing it controlling that aspect? Or is anger something that is actively controlling you? Maybe that's something for you that you need to work on or develop more in your life in 2019. Nation number five, Ammon. Ammon in uh, Amos chapter one, verse 13, Amos says, the people man has sinned again and again when they attacked Gilead to extend their borders, they ripped open pregnant women with their swords. So they wanted to get more land and they attack another region, the region of Gilead. And the image here is, is just overly graphic. See, if you take over a parcel of land, one of the problems that you have in the ancient world is that later on, when things settle down, the descendants of the people whose land you stole might come knocking and saying, hey, listen, uh, relatives of ours used to live here. We want our land back. And so Ammon is smart. They actually know, ooh, how do we prevent this from happening? You know what we need to do? We need to cut off not only the current generation, but we need to try and annihilate and cut off subsequent generations as well. We need to prevent any future descendants from making claims on the land that we're taking here. And so they actually kill not only the present generation, but also they kill the future generation as well. But again, we would never do anything like that, would we? Any ways in which we're robbing from the future to fuel the present? Probably a couple that you could think of. One element might be to look in your investment portfolio and see what kind of things you envision those corporations that you are hoping get you a nice nest egg are investing in over the course of time? What's the cost of some of those things? Final nation, number six, is at the start of chapter two, and it's the nation of Moab. And the nation of Moab is called to account for desecrating the graves of another kingdom, the kingdom of Eden, and burning them to ashes. And the nation of Moab considers nothing sacred not even the grave of a foreign monarch. Nothing is off limits, nothing is holy, nothing is untouchable. They're gonna go in there and they're gonna just burn it to the ground, do whatever needs to happen to accomplish their goals. And we're gonna see a little bit of a thread of this through the book of Amos. That Amos goes toe to toe with each and every one of us 
who says, you know what, I'm gonna get something. I have a goal that I need to accomplish. And whoever stands in my way, whatever stands in my way, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it. Because when you get into that kind of a position or when you get into that kind of attitude or thinking, we, we realize that we're willing to do things that we may not normally or otherwise be willing to do. And we're going to treat people around us in a way that may not be honoring to God. And how people are treated matters to God. And it's going to come up again and again and again in the book of Amos. And God cares not just about what happens, but how it happens. God cares about the impact of our actions on people around us. Not just the people here even who identify as the people of God. Amos begins his prophetic words to all of the nations around Israel. He hasn't even got to what God has to say to God's people yet. God's call for justice, his call for righteousness extends to all. Right relationships between people, between nations, it doesn't matter because justice is at the core of God's character. When we think about this in other characteristics of God, for example, in 1 John, the Bible says, well, God is love. And therefore, when we love other people, we're expressing a core characteristic of who God is. And just like God is love, God is just, God is fair, God is righteous, and it's an attribute of God's character. And so when justice is done, when people are rightly relating to each other, God's will, his heart, his desire is being done on earth as it is in heaven. When we look through uh, some of the other texts in the Old Testament and New about the theme of justice, Isaiah chapter 61 verse 8 says, and the Lord, this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah, I the Lord, I love justice. I love seeing when people are relating rightly with others. I hate it when wrong is done, when people are robbed. And then Isaiah says, the sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world. God is deeply interested that justice is done. That what is right and true and good is lived out, not only at the level of the nations, but also at the interpersonal level as well. And so when we act in a way that is just, we are reflecting the heart and the character of God in the world. When we pray what we've come to call the Lord's Prayer, we say, God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? We are praying and asking God that God's justice would be done. We're pleading that things that are wrong would be made right and things that are true and that are just would triumph. And if justice is at uh, the heart of God's character, and just like God is love, we're to be loving. If God is just, then we also are to be just, and people who are just, and people who care about 
justice because we carry the responsibility of bearing God's image and being God's witness in the world. And so God invites you and I into the process of being a participant in bringing justice to fruition in God's good world. In the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is talking about what does it look like to live 